0: This is the Prehistory Guys podcast. I'm Michael Bott.
1: And I'm Rupert Soskin. So welcome to our 22nd monthly podcast. Do you know what, Rupert? What? 22nd. It's completely thrown me because I've been using our numbers of our podcasts to measure how near to the two year mark we're getting.
0: You got yourself completely tangled then.
1: We've done more slightly more than one in a month,
0: yeah. We have. You you lucky people. I, I interrupted you, Rupert. You did, you did what I... hey <laughs> We're going to talk about beer. Yes we are. We are beer in prehistory. It's not something that gets talked about often, but if our instincts are anything to go by, we feel that after this show you're going to have a fascinating new lens through which to view some of our ancestors' activities.
1: Now the thing is Twitter is a wonderful thing. You, you never know who you're going to bump into. I happen to bump into Merrin Now, Merrin is an archaeologist and researcher who has made experimental archaeology and the investigation of ancient technologies her speciality. That means weaving, spinning, felting and stuff, but particularly the art of brewing. So, right, I thought... I bet I knew a few people out there who'd love to hear about beer in prehistory. And uh, yeah, wouldn't it make a great topic for the prehistory guys uh, to do in a podcast? So I thought, well, all right,
0: let's get her on. We're delighted to welcome Merrin to the programme. But not only that, Merrin's husband, Graham, is a craft brewer. And so he'll be joining us, too, to help enlighten us all about the magical process of making <clears> beer. So, welcome to you both. Hello,
2: hello. Thank you, thank you for asking us. Not, not many people ask us to talk about beer. You guys have, and it's, it's going to be fun. It is going to be fun, and let's hope we can make it the first of many.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah,
2: look forward to that. There's a lot to be said about beer. In particular, malt, malt is the thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, you, under normal circumstances, we'd be uh, talking to you and you'd be at your home in Orkney. Yes. And I know where you live because we go past it on the way to the Tomb of the Eagles. That's you know, right. Folks, if you go and look on a map, look at uh, South uh, Ronaldsey, um, near Scupper Flow is where uh, Darren and Graham live. Or even um, Merrin and Graham. Even Darren Mary. And Merrin, mm. Merrin. and Merrin. <laughs> and Merrin. <laughs> Very near Scarborough is where Merrin and Graham live. Um, so we, we've passed uh, by almost your front door without uh, realising it. Uh, yes, yes, on our probably. Journeys. Yeah, but today you're in Bristol. What are you doing in Bristol? We're
2: visiting family. We're yes. visiting our son, Sam, who has enabled this technology to work because it well. wasn't doing too well when <laughs> we tried to talk to each other on Orkney. So... uh we didn't travel down here especially for it.
1: You traveled down there especially for Christmas. We did indeed. Thank you, Sam Dinley. You are our savior. <laughs> and in case you're wondering, uh, we're doing this recording on Monday, the 23rd of December. Day yes. Before Christmas Eve. Yes. Anyway. So without further ado, Merrin um, Graham. Tell us a little bit about yourselves, you know, how your interests in your respective areas started. Um, Archaeology for you, Merrin. Brewing? Well, actually your background is in IT, isn't it, Graham?
3: Yes, I used to be in computer support at a university and... uh... When I got to my early 50s, they offered me early retirement because they considered God. me dead wood. <laughs> and I was only too pleased to leave.
1: <laughs> but, Marion, what started you off in archaeology?
2: Oh, well, I've always... You could go back to um when I was a toddler because my dad oh. took me to Stonehenge yes. uh, many, many years ago. And I've actually got photographs of me toddling around the the stones at Stonehenge. So it must have made some sort of impact upon me because I've always been interested in stone circles and particularly the Stone Age. That's what I like, especially, is the Stone Age. And it's just been something um, that I've always been interested in. So... I never really studied it. I just used to visit stone circles and things like that. Yeah. And uh, then, well, when I met Graham in a pub, <laughs> as it happened, yes. <laughs> the best place to meet somebody.
1: Well, it kind of makes and, sense. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, at that point, um, then we we got married and had some children. And I wondered what I could do to entertain myself. So I did an archaeology degree at Manchester. Ah, I see. And that's where, um, that's where the studying part came in. Yeah. And one day, uh, well, the archaeology degree fitted in fabulously with raising children because we got the same holidays mm. and I could do something interesting while they were at school. And so it was just filling in an interest, really. Mm,
1: mm. So archaeology for you, uh, Marion, and brewing for you, Graham. Yes, yes.
2: Well, when I was in the final year of the archaeology degree, one of my lecturers told me, beakers were for beer, he said. Ah. You know this, the Bronze Age beakers. Yes, we leap a bit out of the Stone Age for a moment, and so they yeah. said, you know, just oh, as a fact, Bronze Bronze Age beakers were for beer. And yeah. being married to a brewer, I yes. thought, Gosh, I wonder how they made it. Yeah. And that was where it began twenty years ago. Wow! Okay. And I started looking into the process of brewing. Yeah. and looking reading archaeological excavation reports looking for residues and any evidence and like i say that was 20 years ago and i'm still learning about it it's it's a very very interesting thing and so that's that's really where it started and i fell in love with the university library It was Manchester University, (laughs) the John Rylands. And when I finished my degree, I couldn't bear not to be able to go into the university library. So I did an MPhil. Couldn't afford a PhD at the time. So I just did an MPhil and I thought, what shall I do? Ah, yes, the archaeology of beer. That seems like a good thing. And that's how it happened, really.
0: I was just going to start... Dig in, really, for want of a better word, Mm -hmm. because because one of the things in our preliminary chats, you know, when when we first uh, spoke a few weeks back, I was just blown away by how utterly ignorant I was, largely still am, but was about (laughs) uh, about the process of brewing Anyway, and uh, Graham, you commented or you, you said a few things about the fact that it, by today's standards, people go away and they do home brewing and what have you. The amount of stuff they just go and buy it off the shelf—it yes. it bears no relation to what uh, in the Neolithic what people would have had to have been doing to actually arrive at that process. So I think probably a good place to uh, to start digging in is
1: what do you actually have to do to make beer in the first place and what it what is it about you what you actually have to do to make beer that has been missing in investi- in archaeological investigations so far
3: well to make ale technically from the grain is a three-step process and each of these processes requires such different circumstances and conditions that there's no way you can conflate them it's not some happy accident like uh a loaf fell into a bucket of water. A loaf like many of bread, bread say, fell into a bucket, bucket of water
2: and then it fermented.
3: Into ale overnight. It <laughs> can't happen. <laughs> cannot happen. That's starch. Yeah. First, to make alcohol, you use the yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae to convert sugars into alcohol. On a simple basis, a 10% sugar solution, that's a pound of sugar to a gallon of water, mm-hmm. will give you a 5% alcohol solution if you ferment it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But you need to make sugars from the grain first. So that requires a two-step process. First, you have to prepare the grain. Mm-hmm. That's called malting. And Merin, that is Merrin's specialty. She can describe that properly. Mm. And the next stage is mashing, where you mm-hmm. take the malt, you crush it, and you mix it with hot water for about at about 65 degrees centigrade, for an hour at least, maybe longer, and the enzymes in the malt will convert all the starches into sugars. Do you want to explain the malting process?
2: Well, it's very, very basic and very simple. Malting goes back... Well, Well, I'll start off with the earliest archaeological evidence for malted grain, and that's 13,000 years ago in the ancient Near East...
3: Wow. Um,
2: yep. yep. That's and, when
3: Britain was under
2: ice. Yeah, and at that point, thinking in terms of chronology and timelines, um, here, the British Isles and Europe, we were under ice 13,000 years ago. So the first agriculturalists,
1: yeah.
2: they were um, growing grain and they were processing it in some way. Malt is partly germinated grain. Yes. when a barley grain begins to germinate enzymes are released we know all the science now obviously mm-hmm. um, enzymes are released from a little layer of cells underneath the husk called the allurone layer the enzymes convert the grain starch into sugars if just left to grow this is the food that converts the starch of the grain into sugars and that's the food source for the grain to grow and then the little shoots grow and use up the whole starch reserve this is a thing
1: to get for people isn't it i think that there's a misconception about what malt actually is it's not really in and of itself a separate thing it's more really describing a process isn't it
2: well, yes, I suppose it is. It is. It is a process. It's the germination process yeah. of grain.
1: It certainly
0: shocked me. I had absolutely no idea. I thought malt was uh, was a kind of grain. I suppose. Yeah, it some is.
2: Pe- some people think you can grow well, malt. So, um, so as the grain begins to germinate, these enzymes are released. They convert the starch of the grain into sugars, and then the roots begin to grow. If you interrupt this process and you stop the grain from growing, then you can capture those sugars. By drying it. So what is the job of a maltster? A maltster will steep the grain in water. That means air and oxygen are both required. The, The best thing to do is to just leave it in a bag in a shallow stream, and that will just do the job nicely. We're thinking prehistoric malting now. Yeah, sure. And uh, then you dry the grain very gently and carefully. If you're lucky enough to live in the Middle East or the ancient Near East, you can just spread it out in the sun. The grain, the partly germinated grain, will dry. And then when you heat that up with water, those little enzymes reactivate, and they carry on turning the starch of the grain into sugars, but yes. you've got them captured in some sort of container, and you mm. make sugars. <clears throat> now, most people in the in the world of academic archaeology, um, grain is ground into flour to make bread, or you mm. can boil it to make porridge or gruel. But if you malt it, that is, you allow it to begin germination, then you stop it. A, it becomes more friable and easier to crush. And secondly, when you mix it with hot water, you get malt sugars.
1: Yeah.
0: And
2: that's the sugars that you need to ferment into alcohol.
1: So many or people beer. would be thinking that's a very long-winded way about getting sugars. And we're so used to sugar being freely available, <laughs> you know, not if, <laughs> if, if, if not in a paper bag <laughs> from the local supermarket then at least it's available in fruits and and, uh, and and things like that but those things were not necessarily available
3: even from the middle ages further back into prehistory all the way back to the dawn of agriculture the only sugars available were honey which would have been a precious substance and oh, yes. very yeah yeah oh, exactly it's... and high Sugar fruits. Now in northern Europe there aren't any high sugar fruits. Mm. On Orkney in particular, there is no fruits suitable and <laughs> there is no honey. Yes. <laughs> Not a lot. Not, yeah. a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Not a lot.
3: <laughs> so if you want to yeah. get sugars, you have to grow grain. There is no alternative. Mm.
1: That's the point I wanted you to make, yes. <laughs> Plain and simple. If uh yeah, if you want uh, sugars, back then you needed to go through this malting process with grain.
2: Malt makes beer. Malt is much more complicated now than it used to be because now we have roasted malts and all sorts of different malts. Yeah,
3: In the archaeological literature, malt is often referred to as roasted, toasted, sprouted barley. Now, if you roast it or toast it, you've killed the enzymes and if you've sprouted it, you've used up most of the sugars.
1: Right. So
3: it's a complete <laughs> misunderstanding on that one. That's interesting. It's only, partially, okay. it's only partially germinated. Yeah, yeah. Just enough to see the roots and the shoots. Yeah.
2: One third the length of the grain. Yes. The root, the acrospire, which is the, the term for the root and the shoot that, that comes out of the grain as it begins to grow in the ground, yes. that's the acrospire. Mm-hmm. Well, when that's yeah. on the molting most people have heard of bolting floors maybe yes. I don't don't um, i i hadn't
3: okay. i confess i had not until now that's uh, interesting until you well, told me yeah the bolting mm. floor is a significant feature because once it started to germinate just so you can see the root and the shoot just beginning the grain has not completely converted only a little bit has already converted what you have to do is continue the growing process and yet inhibit the growth. Ah, yes. And they do this by raking and turning the malt on the floor.
1: Yeah. Okay. This
3: confuses its geotropism, and the poor thing desperate to grow, but it doesn't know okay. which way to grow. <laughs> and if you can keep this up for three or four days, you get complete conversion of the whole grain into malt. Starch and enzymes, which is all malt is. Is very, very little sh- There's about... Five percent sugars in malt, naturally, but not very yeah. much more but it 's
1: these processes that are going to give us the clue as to yes. what was going on in prehistory, yeah. not necessarily yes. evidence of the end results, so what is it in these pro in the processes of making beer that are going to show up in archaeology and that in your opinion, may have previously been lost because people didn't understand the process of making beer in the first place.
2: Right. Well, when you've steeped your grain and you've spread it out on the malting floor and the little barley grains have begun to grow and little roots and shoot is a third of the length of the grain, then you need to kiln it and dry it. Well, okay. Now, most people, when they think of kilning, they think of really... A hot process like making pottery or, you know, a kiln is a a fierce place. However, when you're drying grain, malt, when you're drying malted grain, you have to dry it very slowly, very carefully so that you keep those enzymes active and alive. When you read uh, medieval literature, they talk about keeping the spirit of the grain alive. (laughs) So they knew. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 magic technology explained today by science. Yes. People mm-hmm. have known how to make malt for at least 13,000 years. They knew what to do mm-hmm. but they didn't know why. Yep. So yes. you dry the grain in the kiln very very gently. Sometimes things can go wrong and you get carbonized grain because the there's a kiln fire Mm-hmm. And this happens quite often. And I've spoken to Maltsters and they say it happened right up to the 1960s or 70s. Yeah, you would yeah. have your, your malt kiln, your your malt house would, would catch fire and burn down with yeah. all your malt inside. <laughs> Imagine. Disaster. Absolute disaster <laughs> because you've lost your year's harvest. Yes. Yes. You've carefully, carefully made your malt. You've got the grain to germinate just perfectly. You try and dry it in the kiln. There's a big fire. Oh, dear. So then you end up with carbonised grain. Now, carbonised grain is quite often found in at Neolithic sites, yeah. Bronze Age sites, medieval sites. If you can look at that carbonised grain under a microscope and you see that the embryo is missing there 's a little mm-hmm. bit of the grain called the embryo it 's just um, it 's the bit where the
3: roots and shoots come where from. the
2: roots and shoots come from it 's not like mm-hmm. a little baby it's, an, yeah. it's, it's just a technical term for a part of the grain and if you find uh, thousands of carbonized grains with missing embryos it 's very likely that what you 've stumbled upon is a failed kilning of the malt. Now, does, does that make sense?
3: Yes, absolutely it does. The actual evidence for uh, malting at 13,000 BC is from Professor Li Liu at uh, Stanford, which, Stanford yes. University. She found starch granules in a cave Which showed signs of malting. There were signs of erosion on the on the starch
2: granules. The trouble is, you see, that when you get it right, and when your grain bar, when your malting, your malt house doesn't burn down. When you get it right, you you malt it, and then you dry it, and then you mix the crushed malted grain with water, and that's the second process called mashing in to make the sugars, and then you ferment it. Well, there's no evidence left. The barley grain is destroyed by the malting and mashing process. Yes, yes. You take the... um well, We haven't even started talking about sparging yet. Mm. No. <laughs> but you, you have to extract the liquid from your mash tun, and then all of the leftover grain, which is called spent grain, you feed to the pigs yes. or the... Animals. Yep. So yeah. there actually is. If you get it right, if you turn your grain into malt and ale, yeah. there's nothing left.
1: Yeah.
2: There the is evidence. no evidence other than the containers and the vessels and the equipment.
1: That's the that's now the at, thing. Gebekli Tepe, yes. yeah, at
2: Gebekli Tepe. Yes, at Göbekli Tepe, they found these large carved out of limestone containers do you know what i'm talking about have you seen the they're, they're like troughs
1: yes.
0: let's yeah. call
2: them troughs
0: yes mm-hmm.
2: troughs made out of limestone and they would be ideal mm. for mm. mashing in mm. Mm. and you need to heat it up so what did they do they heated stones yeah. and they put the stones in so mm. you get fire cracked stones that are used for heating mash tuns mm. Hmm. you'll get you'll just get the evidence yeah. of the equipment isn't, that is yes. left to make exactly the beer.
1: isn't there also a considerable amount of evidence for brewing in um uh, malting floors in the middle
2: east yes ah. yes it, yes yes that's the other thing um malting floors that's where you spread the grain out yep. for it to begin to germinate and i was intrigued when i started, well, reading excavation reports in all those 20 years ago in the John Ryland's library, I kept coming across places 10,000, 12,000 BC in the ancient Near East, where they had large, smooth,
3: lime
2: lime plaster floors, or maybe beaten earth floors, and they were generally interpreted as dance floors. But it would uh-huh. be a floor like that within a building is absolutely perfect for making malt. Yes. Mm. There but. is one particular um, very intriguing floor surface in – I hope I get the pronunciation correct – Beda. Have you heard of Beda? B-E-I-D-H-A.
1: No, it's, it's not, not one not. that springs to my mind. No, nor me.
2: Excavated in the 19, gosh, I think it was the 1960s by Diana Kirk Bride, part of the Robert Braidwood excavations in the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. And there's one sentence in an excavation report that I read that made me, well, just jump up and down and, and run round and round in, in circles. There were thousands of grain impressions oh. on a lime. Plaster floor, wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) So, what what does that mean? Why on earth at Beda, and I think Beda is about eight thousand BC. Yeah. Why on earth were they spreading grain out on a floor surface within a building? Mm -hmm. And the only reason I can think of is that this is somehow the remains of malt, the the evidence of, of making malt. That's the only time, it's just one sentence in an excavation yeah. report that can mm. send you, Oh my goodness, malt.
1: Yes. yes.
2: And but here's the thing—that's not bread making, is it? N- but here's the thing, think. Mary.
1: I mean, you, you, that's what happened because you understood the process that you were primed yes. in the first place to understanding the relationship between the limed floor and these grains. Unless you
2: understand it's the lime process, plaster lime floor. plaster floor. Then a lime plaster floor and making lime plaster is is one heck of a process in itself. Oh,
3: really? Okay. Like like a- Labor and fuel intensive. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's
2: a very deliberate, specific thing that they're doing to make these. And you've got these large floors, deliberately made, smooth surface. You don't want cracks in it because you don't want your grain to fall into the cracks. One of the things about them is that they're they're regularly repaired. They keep them in good nick. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: They keep them in good condition. And then this is where you would spread your grain out. Now, as you know, in the ancient Near East, grain grows there wild. So the first mm. agriculturists were gathering wild grain. Somebody must have had the idea that if you malt it, if you let it begin to germinate, it gets more friable. It's easier to crush, mm. it's easier to process. But they also discovered that you make sugars. Yes. But the, yes. these malting floors, these smooth, there are, there are, some of them are painted red. Some of them are mm. described as m- stamped mud, or beaten earth, or lime plaster. Mm. Yes, they're making. They are deliberately making floor surfaces for some purpose.
1: And if if you're starting off doing that, I mean, one pro- byproduct of that is, of course, animal feed, or even a, you know, a, a reasonable source of nutrition in the first place for uh, for, for anybody but if you then discover that you know sugars are um uh, maybe self fermenting out of that i think what, with one of the big big questions and it doesn't it's it's not just
0: solely related to to this subject it's something that you that comes up time and time again is if something is not a straightforward process so so you know this is something you say uh, as you said uh, right at the beginning you know th- this can't be a happy accident so it's what is the the developmental sequence how on earth did people come to realize that if we do this and then we do this and then we do this we're going to get this it's you know it's it's one of those uh, extraordinary aspects of uh, you know of human development is you know what do you how do you think that came about i um, i
2: don't know
3: i was going to say there is evidence for cereal processing at this site called oharlo 2 on the lakes of galilee on the shores shore of lake galilee
2: of lake galilee yeah
3: they have sickles they have starch grains which by the way were not examined for morphological changes the excavators there didn't even consider malt It's only Li Yu who who is looking for these details. But they were certainly processing cereals at 23,000 BC. Wow. There are fire, stones marked with fire, so they were heating stuff as well. The excavators interpret this as making bread. Yes. Small biscuits, flatbreads. Now, if in the previous ten or 20,000 years somebody had realised that if you partially germinate this stuff... You get a sweet product. Ah, you'll get a sweet bread or a sweet like sort of biscuit. Oh, and how we
1: love sweet stuff!
3: Exactly, it was the sugars. Malt is particularly attractive. It's so attractive. It's in confectionery and breakfast cereal. Of course, it's quite a nice flavour. And so, if these people learned how to make malt biscuits, they would keep doing this. And from that, so it it could quite simply have been that somebody made nicer
0: biscuits than somebody else, and said, "What did you do?"
3: Mm. Yes.
0: I made it quicker. But then it's... (laughs) I know.
3: It's a trick that once you've learned, you will not forget, and you'll repeat, a bit like fire. It's a trick that once you've learned, it's so valuable and useful, you'll continue to do it.
1: And then once you've got to that stage, once you've got to a substance that uh, has sugar Ah, in it, then it's not hard to imagine whatever accident happened that produced... Yep. The fermentation occurred, and yep. guess what? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Alcohols.
0: Now,
2: have you come across the bread or beer debate?
0: Uh, the bread or beer debates. No, I'm sure I've heard aspects, but not specifically.
2: One, one of my heroes, Robert Braidwood, in 1953 or something, um, he had a, got all the specialists at the time together, and they wanted to discuss bread or beer and I would say why did people start cultivating grain was the question was it for bread or was it for beer and -hmm. they had a huge debate about it and it's published I can I can give you the details of of the publication and it is available online um, nowadays and uh, I would say it wasn't bread it wasn't beer It was malt malt and And malt sugars, sugars, yeah, because we all like a sweet thing, Mm -mm. yeah,
1: yeah. And
2: so I think that people began cultivating, or people began processing wild grains because they knew they could make sugars with it.
3: Yeah, and then when the climate changed and the little drier, it didn't grow wild so easily. They couldn't gather enough for their. So they had to start growing it. They had to start cultivating it to get enough to make whatever it was they were doing. So what I'm hearing <laughs> from
1: is, is that, yes, uh, is that <clears throat> beer is a kind of, or brewing is a kind of missing link in all this. Yes, we've got mm. bread. Yes, Absolutely. we've got the production of, uh, of malt. But they complicate each other. And it's something that's not really been looked at and seen before. This balance between the two that probably existed that produced the kind of agriculture that you know results in whatever evidence we have in the lime plaster floors, in the tanks, the whatever vessels, the vessels, etc. Yeah, et cetera, yeah?
0: Mm. I must admit there's one something else that came up. Uh, you know, reading uh, uh, one of your actually, Mary, where you described. Oh, you. Uh,
2: <laughs> Not many people uh, read my papers. <laughs> <laughs> no, they uh, but don't. It, it, on. it
0: put me onto that thing of uh, well, it's it's the molting floors. So you've got the lime floors, and, lime plaster floors, uh, lime plaster floors, and uh, and the description uh, of uh, the floor reminded me of the settlement uh um, associated with Scarabray uh, not Scarabray, with the Tomb of the Eagles um, and uh, and it was a, a just an immediate thought of, well that sounds like the settlement there um, and yet nobody as, well I had never heard anybody talking about any of the sites that you can think of that seem similar in the context of brewing mm. and uh, or malting specifically. Yes, let's uh,
1: let's bring it bring it away from the Middle East and bring it across uh, across Europe. By the way, is there any evidence in Europe? I, you know, is there sort of an interim stage? You know, of the uh, travel, or is or do we just assume that it has travelled across with uh, the, the farm, the early farmers across Europe and in, into Britain?
2: What I used to say was that grain processing began in the ancient Near East about. You know, however many thousand years ago, 20, mm, 13,000 13, years mm. ago. This was a new technology. Grain didn't grow in Europe or Britain at that time. Grain processing begins in the ancient Near yep. spreads across Europe, reaches the British Isles. Yep. Now, my problem was that, yes, there is evidence for. Processing grain. I mean, we know that the linear band ceramic people were growing grain yep. and they had floor surfaces have been ploughed out. So that evidence in most of Europe doesn't exist. You can't, very little evidence for malting floors mm-hmm. yeah. throughout Europe. There were some places in Turkey that look rather interesting, yeah. but it's a language barrier, really. A lot of the really interesting sites, I don't have, sufficient language to read those excavation reports so that was a problem it surprises
1: me that nothing that there's not much to come out of the linear band ceramic uh, culture because that, I mean, they're one of the most archaeologically studied cultures in the whole of, um, you know, prehistory, aren't they?
2: If you look at their pottery, yeah. you can see that they have some very fine drinking vessels.
1: Yes, that's really what I was getting to. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, right. So, and and it's the pottery, it's those, the, the, the LBK, they've got beautiful, you know, drinking vessels yeah. with. Um, so, Clear
1: Mary, what date range are we talking about for the linear band ceramic? Oh.
2: 5000 BC
1: in a in a band stretching about what 500 to 1000 years
2: yes yes the the, the linear band keramic and then you've got um and they are their sort of culture is found in modern, what we now call France yeah. and Germany yeah. and yeah. all around there and they built long well they had lots of wood to build with yeah so they built nice long long houses buildings, yeah yeah, you know
1: that the houses were long and yeah, yes. Yeah, so at the risk of digressing, they are also pretty beastly to each other as well. Were they? We, yes, we did. We, Ooh, yeah. you oh, you are yes. digressing. Yeah, yeah. We, we did. We did a whole podcast about them uh, raiding each other, murdering. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. That that's, uh, I don't know if well, that's got oh, anything if... to do with alcohol and beer consumption, but that's not an avenue we went <laughs> down you at never the time. <laughs> no, let's not go there. <laughs> so we've gone through
0: a massive period of time through mm-hmm. history from donkey's years you know i mean 23000 years ago you said uh, uh, in uh, uh, in the in the middle east for uh, for evidence of uh, of the use of grain in that in that sense Some and, sort then of grain through, and then coming through and then 13000 years ago we've got the the distinct um, evidence for brewing uh, but now we're talking about britain In the Neolithic. Mm -hmm. So what is the evidence that we have for brewing in the Neolithic in the British Isles?
2: Val Do you know um, there was a large rectangular timber building? Most intriguing things, these are. The large rectangular timber buildings. I wish there was a better name for them. Um, I like to think of them as barns, some of them. Right. Uh, because you have to store the grain and process it. Now, the story of Balbride, from aerial photographs, they saw a large outline of a large building and they thought it was medieval. So they started (laughs) digging. And then they found some, guess what, carbonised barley grains. Hooray! (laughs) Hooray for the carbonised barley grains. And they found some carbonised barley grains. And they found lots of them. Thousands. Thousands of them. Yeah. And these were all spread out on the floor. Um, Professor Ian Ralston, when I was doing my early years of my research, and I, I must credit him for this, um, I got in touch with him and he sent me six little grains mm-hmm. from Balbride. Oh. Bless him. Oh, it was wow. a lovely thing to do. Yeah. And I spent some time trying to get funding to look into the archaeological evidence for malt. Mm-hmm. And uh, some friendly people at UMIST in Manchester managed to put one of these little Balbridy 6,000-year-old barley grains under a scanning electron microscope. Guess what? The embryo was missing. Which means? I think that the carbonised barley grains that they found at Balbride were the oh. result of a failed kilning. The oh, thing goodness. burnt down. Oh, my the goodness. The building burnt down.
1: Yeah, right. And it's that accident,
3: again, which witches quite and that's,
2: common
1: in malting houses. You it's the
3: common fate of many of these large rectangular timber structures. Brains the archaeologists' explanation for this is it was a chieftain's house, yes. and it was burnt down to commemorate his death.
1: How many times have we heard something like that? About a burning yes. down,
2: yes. So that, so that I think, is, is very clear evidence. And then um, there's another little collection of carbonised grains that were found on the little island of Wire, which is one of the Orkney Islands. Oh, yes, Bulbride,
1: for right. to be clear, is um, in Scotland. Oh, sorry, yes. Near, I'm sorry. Where's the nearest, uh, are we talking sort of below Aberdeenshire? shire Yes, yes it's in there. Aberdeenshire. Okay, fine.
2: Balbridey is in Aberdeenshire. And
1: Wire, and, uh, one of the Orkney's. And Wire
2: is one of the little islands of, it's one of the smaller islands yeah. of the Orkney group. And about seven or eight years ago, they found a large amount of carbonized grain in a rectangular timber <laughs> building with,
3: <laughs> with stone foundations. Oh, yeah. Excellent. And they then went on to remake a floor above the carbonised grain and rebuilt the structure and continued to use it. So this is an example of a rectangular timber structure that was reused afterwards. It wasn't just... Even if the chieftain died and they burnt it down, somebody else came along and rebuilt it. Yeah.
1: And I think this is the one thing I wanted our listeners to be clear about, is that how this beer itself is an illuminating thing when it comes to doing archaeology.
3: The evidence for brewing, though, as we say, is entirely, almost entirely ephemeral. Yes. The beer is drunk, the <laughs> residues are washed away, yes. the spent grain yeah. is fed to the animals. Yeah, The only thing yeah. that remains is the equipment and installations. Yeah. And if the equipment's made out of wood, mm. which is very often the case, yes. that doesn't exist. Mm. Mm. There's yes. quite
2: a lot of there's quite a lot of I got a little bit obsessed with rectangular timber buildings <laughs> for a while. As you, would. As you do. Yeah. Well you would, wouldn't yeah. you, really? And I started reading excavation reports from as many of them as I could find. And it's surprising how many um in the excavation report itself it says carbonized grains found, embryos missing. Yes. I can't remember the names. There's Ballynagilly and there's a lot of Irish rectangular in the buildings.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I think that what we're looking at is possibly a, a grain processing building. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to see the malting floor because if it's beaten earth,
3: mm, yeah. it will be ploughed out. Mm, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah.
2: But I, I found, uh, I, I got a long list of rec- Neolithic rectangular timber buildings, which is a terrible mouthful, with carbonized barley grains with missing embryos. It, there's quite a lot of that sort of thing around, but they just say, "Oh, the building burnt down."
1: Well. A penny's just dropped for me because going back. Really? to Well, yes, because going back to uh, Tomb of the Eagles isn't that settlement. I know it's a bit later. I don't think it's a Neolithic. So it's always that's a, Bronze, Age. Bronze Age. Bronze Age, but isn't yeah. it referred to as the burnt down? Uh, what
2: is it? The I used to work
1: there. Of course you did. Yes. I used to
2: tell. I used to tell the story. Marin used to work that's at the Tomb you... of the
3: Eagles. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes, I did, I did. Wonderful place.
3: As a tour guide.
2: Yes, mm. wonderful place. Um, there's a, the, You've got a bit mixed up there because yeah. what they found there was burnt stone.
1: Ah, uh, yeah.
2: A heap of burnt stone.
0: The burnt stone mound. Beside
2: yeah. a trough.
0: Yes, yeah.
2: Which was used for heating water. Yes. You put your crushed malted grain into the trough With water, you heat it up, you make sugars. Yes. There's a wonderful, and this research was done by some Irish archaeologists, the Moore Group, and they looked at lots of burnt mouths with stone lined troughs or whatever beside them. And they interpreted them and did some wonderful experimental archaeology, which showed that they are perfect as mash tuns. But
1: just, just very briefly, just to recap, what would those tanks, how would those tanks be used, and the heated stones? Because the important thing well, is we, to getting a particular temperature of water for a particular process in, the, in brewing, isn't there? There
3: is the medieval technique for getting the right temperature, which is a property of water, is at around 74 degrees centigrade it begins to, all the ripples disappear. It becomes almost glass clear and you get a very clear reflection. A mirror-like surface is the expression. We've repeated this, it's true. 74 degrees centigrade is a very good temperature to actually strike. That's the process of putting the crushed malt into the hot water. The temperature drops as you add the Mm -hmm. grain, the, the malt. And from then on, you can maintain this 65 degrees by adding the few-odd hot stones.
1: Okay. What I'm saying is that the, the, the that um, those um, containers that are, you can see at Scarabray and elsewhere and at that site, uh, at the Tomb of the Eagles, are appropriate for this pro- process. That's my point.
3: Yes, not Scarabray, sorry. Not the ones not at Scarabray. Scarabray. There, there there's, are no, there's no troughs, troughs
2: at Scarabray. Troughs.
3: But we did do... An experiment at a reconstructed burnt mound on Bressay in Shetland. Okay, uh-huh. 200, 200 liters of water, yeah. fifty kilos of malt, and we made a very fine ale out of it. Oh yeah, okay. Marion has <laughs> got a picture of this.
2: At Scarabray, they would have used large groovedware buckets okay. as the container for the mash tun. Okay, that- it's, it's just just to recap: we've got growing the grain. Yep. Steeping it by putting it in a bag in the stream. Yep. Then you need to germinate it on a malting floor and dry it. That's the yep. malting process. Then we move into the mashing you take the malted grain, you crush it, and you mix it with hot water in a container. Yes. Most people, you see, it's a very experiential thing. Mm. That's what the experimental archaeologists would say. And if you've never done it, you can use thousands of words to explain it. Yes. But it's different processes. You've got the making of the malt. Yep. Then you have to mash the malt in with water in a container. Yep. And the container that you're talking about the Bronze Age stone trough. Yes. There wasn't a stone trough, as I, far as I know, at Scarabray, but there were yes. large groovedware pots that had a volume of...
3: Over 20 gallons. Over
2: 20 gallons. Wow. In Structure yeah.
3: 7, beside the hearth, yes. to keep it warm. Oh, beautiful. Now, what do you want to store <laughs> 20 gallons beside the fire to keep it warm for? milk no water
2: durrington walls there were lots of groovedware pots as well
1: i was going to mention that later but i'm going to mention another site named barnhouse
2: oh yes
1: <laughs> say a bit about barnhouse Marian.
2: <laughs> barnhouse is, is very interesting barnhouse is the stone remains of a little neolithic village mm-hmm. beside the stones of Stenness. yes um, it's parallel by the Ness of Brodger, which you've got uh, yeah. beside the the Ring of Brodgar. Yeah. Well, at Barnhouse, when they excavated there, they found oh, goodness, barley husks. Me. Barley husks. So they were definitely processing barley there. And
3: that is interpreted. They found
2: as... a ceramic. The pottery assemblage was very interesting at Barnhouse. They had. A few large groovedware pots, and groovedware pots, for your listeners, is flat-bottomed pottery, Mm -hmm. and they're like big buckets. Yes. The ceramic assemblage at Barnhouse, there's a few large pots that contain maybe eight, nine gallons in volume. There's lots of little pots that contain about a litre in volume. That's a pretty good indication for your large groove ware pots being for fermenting yeah, in, and yeah. your small groove pots being for consumption there's drains yes all oh. over the place there's uh there's drains there's a dresser those those dressers are, are quite good for putting These? a pot on and there's also building number 6 has a a beaten earth floor yeah, oh really it's like
3: a clay floor yeah Mm. that was remade regularly and expanded at least three times. They made it bigger. They removed the box bed, some, you know, the, the bed structure, and eventually they removed the half as well. Oh, that is tantalising stuff. To make it as big stuff. as possible. Yeah.
2: And it right. was really? frequently remade. Mm. But the very best evidence for brewing a barnhouse yeah. was was um, when they analysed, they did gas chromatography mass spectrometry. Yeah. And that means that they they analysed the fabric of the pottery and they discovered barley lipids, that's barley fats,
3: mm-hmm. and yes.
2: unidentified sugars.
3: <laughs> barley lipids are waxy. They are only mobile at a high temperature and probably they float on water. It's one of the problems with brewing. If you over-sparge, you can wash the barley lipids through and you get soapy beer. Yeah. It's horrible. Uh, But it's a feature of sparging that they are liberated. So to get barley lipids in the pot suggests to me that they were sparging there. The other evidence is the barley husks they found in structure two. Okay. This is interpreted as dehusking barley. Now I'd love to know how you scrape the husks off barley with stone tools. (laughs) Nowadays (laughs) Nowadays they make pearl barley
2: bites
3: with Rubbing it between steel rollers. Yes, yes. But the interpretation is dehusking barley, and this is in the archaeological literature that barley was dehusked. Okay. However, if you're crushing malt, one of the things is you get barley husks. They, they are yeah. actually the filter for the sparging, the loutering and sparging stages. Amazing. So you
2: haven't explained loutering. No, loutering or
3: sparging. But they are part of the filter bed of the making of beer. They're essential to making beer. If you grind malt, you can't mash it properly. Yeah. You need to crush it. You, they're an essential part of the malty, of the mashing process, the barley husks. But if you crush malt and you leave it, the flour will disappear, but the husks may survive for a little while, long enough to be preserved under layers of whatever brilliant
1: this is so tantalizing and i can hear a lot of it really is tantalizing a lot of, a lot of beer enthusiasts who happen to be interested in prehistory at the same time getting terribly excited about this. Mm, yes well, absolutely. Well, absolutely the absolutely. organic
2: residue evidence is interesting because mm. that was one of the things that started me off um on all of this research yeah. one of the uh, there was a beaker pot i was told beakers were for beer there's a beaker pot found at North Main's Strath-Allen. Do you know that?
1: No, I don't know that.
2: Uh, organic residue evidence. They found cereal-based residues in a beaker pot with meadow sweet yes. pollen, and that was Bronze Age. Okay. And this, this is people say this is evidence for for beer. When I started looking at excavation reports, I found similar residues identified in grooved ware pottery, oh, which is neolithic, yes. at yes. Balfarg riding stables. Yes. Residues on beaker pots were recognised as being evidence for brewing, but the same residues have been found on grooved ware. For
1: those that don't know, Balfarg is a fascinating site uh, in, in Scotland. It is a henge circle. Balfarg is a very important site and there's a place we must visit actually Uh, yeah we should But I I, I gathered that was a bit of of an epiphany for you at Balfarg that you know well yes
2: because I I, I found there was evidence on Neolithic pottery Mm. that was very similar to evidence on Bronze Age pottery and the the residues on the bronze age pottery were identified as being possibly brewing residues
1: here's the thing we're talking about grooved ware all of the evidence we've talked about so far for brewing in britain has been coming from scotland and we know that we associate grooved ware mm-hmm. with orkney and mm-hmm. if the chronolo- chronology that we've got is is right then grooved ware gradually moves down britain mm-hmm. till we find it at durrington walls so where mm-hmm. else in the whole of the british isles do we get the same sort of evidence from or
3: is there it's curious you say durrington walls there is evidence there for brewing yeah I believe it or not okay. not just the pottery assemblage there is the carried pig teeth yes the pigs were fed on something sweet they were fattened up for the winter solstice yes to be eaten, probably shot, as you say, part of the games. Yeah. What could they have been eating that was sweet? The archaeologists immediately replied, "Oh, they fed them on honey to make <laughs> honey roast ham." But it's a,
0: it's an interesting aspect, though, isn't it? That when you uh, you find evidence for something that is uh, that's not generally spoken about. I mean, how well received has your research been?
2: There's not a lot of interest, really. Be- because we're
3: the only people mm. who are saying it. And in archaeology, it's a consensus view prevails.
2: Mm,
1: yeah,
3: yes. Mm. And it's very difficult to promote a new idea because everybody says, you're the only people who are saying this. It's not mm. in our literature. Uh, it can't exist because yeah. it's not in our literature. But if you read the archaeological literature on brewing, which I did when Marin first started her research mm-hmm. yeah. over 20 years ago, I discovered it was written by people who had never made beer. And their sources (laughs) were also people who had never made beer. And in fact, they didn't know what they were talking about. It was confused and confusing, contradictory Mm. and often downright wrong. So I threw all that lot away and said, forget it. Mm -hmm -hmm. Ignore the archaeological literature. Let's stick with the brewing technology we know.
1: You know, here's the $64,000 question. What did it taste like?
3: (laughs) Well. However you want it to. (laughs) Because many people say, well, how how strong was the beer then? Yes. And again, it's up to the brewer. You can make it as stronger as weak as you can take it up to 12% of barley wine, or you can take it down to a small ale, Mm. a cider level. Sorry, shandy level, you know, 1.5%. Right, yeah. And
1: it's seriously a craft. No science back then.
3: A craft. No, skill and experience. Yeah.
2: Well, yes, it, it, it's like um, you can say that people, they knew what to do and they knew how to do it, but they didn't know why. Mm. Sci- mm. It, 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 science has now explains the brewing process, the mm. malting and the brewing process, mm-hmm. and how you convert grain into malt and sugars, and then you get... The liquid by, you know, separating it by sparging—that's pouring hot water through your bed of mashed mm-hmm. malt. Yeah. And is there ever any
1: evidence for flavorings?
3: Meadowsweet, yeah, is a very good preservative. In our first experiments, we used it. It's as good as hops as preserving things. Oh, really? It'll keep for a year with meadowsweet in it it slowly matures to a quite a sharp flavour a bit uh-huh. like cider okay I mean, it starts with meadowsweet, it starts off like mead oh, actually really? in fact uh-huh meadowsweet is from the saxon mead sweet It's to preserve mead excellent but as far as i know excellent. the saxons didn't distinguish between mead and ale yeah yeah which is why you have mead halls yes yes
0: isn't there you see it's things like that that and it adds to the uh, the richness of the story so you've got a product product you've got a plant that if you if you make your beer you brew your beer with this that it lasts longer oh yes i
1: mean
3: so otherwise
0: how, how long it you know over how many generations you know was it you know before people actually had established that as a process I, don't, I find that sort of aspect of history just so. Do you know what I have to say? Intoxicating <laughs> in this. <aspect. laughs> no, no the top marks. But if you don't,
3: if you don't have any sort of preservatives, it will only last three days, maybe five days oh, before really? it begins yeah. to go off. Yeah. And there are many other herbs too. Yeah. Sage is one. Oh, yeah. Bog
1: myrtle.
3: Oh dear. Yeah. You, you, you're have.
1: making me want to go
0: out juniper. and experiment.
3: Yes, juniper. I was actually, yeah,
0: juniper's an interesting. Yep. And, Sarti. I was going to ask you if, pardon, Sarty.
2: I beg your pardon. Yeah, exactly. Sarty <laughs> yeah. is the kind of it's a it's it's what it's a, it's a kind of beer that they make in Finland the and
3: Finnish farmhouse.
2: Gosh, ages ago it seems. Now you asked me <laughs> about European beer <laughs> yeah. and evidence for European brewing. Now, there's been some fabulous work done recently by some uh, brewing historians uh, into this beer called Sarti, which is what they make in Norway yeah. and they make it in Finland. Yeah. And they don't use herbs. They use juniper okay. branches. Yeah. Wow. A specific, it's a particular kind of juniper. You have to get the right kind of yeah. juniper tree. It grows profusely in Norway and Finland and Mm. they break when they start brewing they go out and they gather the juniper branches and they boil some water with the juniper branches and juniper has preservation qualities
1: Mm. Mm. and
2: that's what keeps it's a particular kind of beer which is called sartine and so the juniper is the preservative, but you won't find any evidence for it because it, it's just sort of like... Oh, mm. my
1: Lord. How, who knew it could this get so wonderfully varied? Thing. You know, uh, we, but, I mean, yeah. we think we're blessed yeah. with the variety of uh, beer that we see on the shelves in mm. uh, Tesco. Mm. Um, but uh, that, here's another thing that makes me want to go back in time. and...
3: Uh, <laughs> well, these, these farmhouse ales, though... The farmers who are producing them are doing it in the traditional yeah, way that they yeah. learned from their fathers and their grandfathers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They have no idea about the science or even much of the technology. Oh, goodness. They don't have thermometers, they don't use anything like that. Oh, the they just skill. know what to do.
0: Absolutely amazing. Mm. I just, I love and, the idea of being able to get into a time machine and going back uh, 5,000 years, 6,000 years, and finding out that all these things that uh, people have thought are sacred places and yes. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and temples, <laughs> so that they're actually pubs, <laughs> brew and burger joints. And brew houses. houses. No. Yeah. And,
3: <laughs> but yeah. what, is, what, what sort of <laughs> feast do you have without <laughs> ale? I mean, it's that's the whole point about need. a festival.
1: Completely mean, utterly. We've got to account you, for it. And I think you're doing a great job doing that. I really, really do. I think this I think if, this is so important. If you go back to these <laughs>
3: Norwegian farmhouse ales, the Scandinavian farmhouse ales, they are brewed for specific occasions. Yes. Feasts. Yes. Midwinter yes. solstice. Yeah. Yeah. Midsummer solstice. Oh what? A- Births, yeah. deaths and marriages, and both the midwinter and the midsummer solstice. Amazing, yeah. yeah. Are celebrated. In fact, there's a law. The first Norwegian Christian king enacted a law that Yule was going to be celebrated on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. And the farmer had to produce a barrel of beer for the, fam- for the family and the farm, and another barrel for guests. Mm. And Yule would last as long as, the- Christmas, Yule would last as long as the beer did. Oh, I see. He was trying to bring the Yule celebration into Christianity. Yes, yes, of course. Because this tradition of drinking Yule <laughs> goes back many thousands of years. It could go back to the Neolithic. That's so further. It, it is. Course or it much does. further. Back to an <laughs> yeah. Anatolia and go, back, go, and go and back to back Yeah. Everything.
0: Gosh. Uh, no. Of course it does. Uh, it's wonderful stuff. It really is wonderful stuff.
1: I think some people are going to have had their eyes uh, opened uh, about this. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, as yeah, as Rupert said yeah. at the beginning, it's another lens. It's another perspective to uh, well, look at life in the nearly
3: through for us. It is the ethnographic evidence and this guy, Mika Lehtonen, has recently book, written a book, Viking Age Brewing, and it's the ethnographic evidence of how to make beer using yeah. these this primitive equipment, often wooden, and these are the details that do not survive in the archaeology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This gives you the flesh yeah. that goes on the bones yeah. of the archaeology. This is what they were doing and how they were doing it. Yeah. And this is, if you like, your lens into brewing. Yeah the farmhouse yeah. ales.
0: Because
3: mm. mm. these people are continuing this tradition that went on for many thousands of years. Mm. In fact, it, it was common in Britain, farmhouse ale yeah. up until the malt tax was rescinded oh. in 1880. <laughs> and instead, they taxed the beer that people produced. Yeah. You see, a farmhouse didn't buy malt. They made it. Yes, yes. And that law yeah. changed farmhouse brewing Farmhouse brewing in Britain stopped at that point. It continued in remote areas, like old- all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm afraid it is that time when I have to draw attention to the uh, um, time we have uh, spent talking.
2: I yeah, do we well. do. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sorry.
0: Was, um,
1: Who's apologising? No, there oh, no, is no, no apology no. to be oh, made. So- no, 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 there no. Is, uh,
0: so-
2: perhaps, perhaps oh. now I I can say that perhaps now you understand. It. It's. It's. A simple process, but it's. This is it why I'm evidence. still learning about it. Yeah. Twenty years after I started researching yeah. it.
1: Yeah.
2: It's it's an enormous yeah. subject, and we've just touched on various aspects well, here. But you can't deny that grain than those those first farmers, which I the first farmers were growing grain, probably mm. to make malt, yeah. and not to grind it into flour yeah. or boil it up to make gruel, which is what Mm. most people think. But Mm. making beer, how many people make beer at home anymore? Right,
3: yeah. And most of those do it from a kit, from a tin that you buy from a shop.
2: So maybe, maybe... um,
3: I don't know. I was going to say it's ironic that we think the Fertile (sighs) Crescent, the cradle of this technology, and everybody knows the Sumerians and the Egyptians brewed beer, these practices no longer exist in these in the Fertile Crescent in this area because of religious changes.
1: Of course, I'm glad you made yes. that point, actually, Graham. Yes, before so, we
3: finish. Oh, yes. It, it's very it easy to assume that beer is a European invention, mm-hmm. or sort of or think that way. But yeah. this has many consequences. As I say, that two of the fathers of archaeobotany, the great people, Jack Harlan in America and Gordon Hillman in Britain did their fieldwork in Turkey mm. and the Near East, yeah. where these patches were no longer performed. And their experiments yeah. and fieldwork were dictated by what they saw around them. Yeah. They never yeah. handled <laughs> malt. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons it doesn't exist in the archaeological literature. Yeah. A second consequence is the biblical studies. You've come across the biblical phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, yeah. This honey is not bees' honey. It's a synthetic sweetness made from some kind of vegetable. They speculate dates or figs or possibly grapes.
1: Okay. But
3: nobody has any problem with the land (laughs) flowing with milk, meaning that it's good pasture. Yeah. Flowing with honey means it's good agricultural land because the primary purpose for growing this grain was to convert it into sugars, liquid sugars. Land flowing with milk and honey is a metaphor for very rich, fertile land.
1: And there you have it, listeners. There you. That's a belter to (laughs) end. Yeah, what a belter to end on. Thank you so much, you two, for this conversation. you Thank you. Hey, Thank you for no, it's listening. a pleasure. I, I think uh, our listeners will have found this uh, very illuminating. We certainly have. We really thought it, um, uh, it, it's it been truly worthwhile um, talking to you uh, uh, about this because it really does <laughs> and give another angle on the whole thing.
0: It, it does, and, and arguably that's one of the most important aspects, uh, you know, that uh, it... Th- these sorts of things when you start talking about even if it's just the tiniest pieces of evidence it makes you look at any prehistoric site with a with a wider mm. view or yeah. you know that wider yeah. lens uh, and a and a different set of uh, you know different aspects of knowledge at your disposal it changes the way you see things and it is it's very
2: important mm, mm. have we changed the way has this this idea that you can turn grain into um beer by a simple set of processes and that this has been known and understood for since the Neolithic Those does this people. does this make you think differently about the Neolithic yes you guys has it has it well uh, yes I think I mean Michael and I
0: have for a very very long time um, been uh, well had different attitudes to an awful lot of uh, of prehistory this if anything, this adds to, i think adds to our uh, our feelings about uh, man's priorities. Uh, you know I think there was a lot more energy went into the all the positive aspects of uh, of feasting and uh, feasting and feeding, you know that cultures around the world where they alcohol is a is a ritual thing you know that you can share oh. your drink uh, <laughs> uh, with uh, with the earth or with the gods or with the whatever and and so much of this i think is ignored in uh, in uh, in large areas of academia so uh, so yes i think it's a wonderful thing that you do
1: <laughs> and hopefully um, many more people will get to hear about the work you do and um, this aspect of um, uh, this way of looking some of the evidence in yeah. uh, in archaeology yes. it's,
2: it's it's a ritual activity to drink it but it's also <laughs> a ritual activity to make like it.
1: it oh yes. indeed magic indeed magic yes perfect and on that note we will say goodbye thank you for listening to whoever's out there um, so
0: yeah no it's a huge huge thank you uh, it really has been eye-opening and uh, Uh, Yes, I'm sure we have many, many listeners who will absolutely love seeing a completely different side to what some of our prehistoric places might have been about.
1: So it's goodbye from Merrin. Bye-bye. And it's goodbye from Graham. Bye-bye. And it's a goodbye from me. (laughs) And it's a goodbye from me. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye-bye.
0: Bye, folks.